when I was at school, I remember my sophomore year of college, I was there, and as I was there, before school started, you like to get there a, a week early, and so I like to get there a week early, and I was in my dorm, and I was praying, and I said, God, would you just, would you use me on this campus? I want to share your gospel. I want Christ to be known, and I remember I had these friends from our freshman year. They, they just moved into the dorms kind of down the hall, and it was um, Oliver and Kyle. They were roommates, Oliver and Kyle. Kyle was crazy. I thought there was no hope for Kyle, right? And Oliver, he looked really decent, you know. He, had a, he always dressed nicely, and, uh, you know, he came from a good family, and he always seemed like he was um, interesting, interested in the gospel. Every time I would share the gospel with him, he says, oh, that sounds really good. That sounds really good. Uh, I think, I, I believe that Christ is, is real. Christ is, uh, uh, he died on the cross for sins. And every time I would ask him, would you want to come to a meeting or would you want to come to uh, church, a church service with me? He would say, no, no, but you could keep asking me next time. And every single time I asked him about the gospel, he would say, yes, he would be positive about it. Uh, I think there is a Christ. I believe there is a Christ. I believe there is God. But I would ask him, well, then have you surrendered to Christ? Have you given your life to Christ? And he goes, no, but just keep asking me. I'll do it sometime. He never de denied the reality of Christ. He never denied the reality of God. But he never surrendered his life to Christ. He never gave his life to Christ. He never was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that not only did Christ die on the cross for the sins of man, but he died for me. He died that I would be saved. And so he didn't really, he just went through college life and always just affirming, yeah, that's true, that's true, but he's not really Lord of my life. He didn't really receive the gospel. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 41 shows what happens when people really do receive the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, we're seeing this third portion of Peter's sermon. If you remember, the first portion was he was explaining the gift of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he was centering on the glories of Christ. And then in verse 37 to 41, you see here, verse 37 to 41, now as I read, now when they heard this, the sermon that he was preaching, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord and God will call to himself. Verse 40, And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. God gave this passage so that you would turn from your sins and trust in Christ and be saved. That's the plain meaning of this text, that you would turn from your sins and trust in Christ and be saved. 
If you're not a Christian, this has a double application. If you're not a Christian this morning, there are three elements, three effects that the gospel must have in your life for you to turn from your sins and trust in Christ to be saved. Three elements that must be there. Not just hearing the gospel, not just affirming the facts or the data of the gospel. Three supernatural effects on you. Consequently, if you are a Christian this morning, as you grow in the faith and you involve yourself in gospel ministry, you will now look for those same elements in the salvation of others. As you share the gospel, the more you understand how God saves people, the better your theology is, the better your theology is, the more... The, uh, the better your ministry becomes, the more Christ-centered, the more gospel-centered. Three elements of the gospel that you must have to turn from your sins and trust in Christ to be saved. Number one, the gospel must bring conviction. The gospel must bring conviction. If there's no conviction, there's no salvation. The gospel has to bring conviction. Verse 37, notice he says here, He's preaching, and they can't help it. They respond. Now when they heard this, and pierced to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Notice he says, they heard this. They heard that in verse 29, and so of, of the same chapter. Verse 31, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And so they hear this. And notice even in, in, the, chap, in the verses before, men of Israel, verse 22, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. Skip to 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross. They are convicted. They are struck. The Bible says they were pierced to the heart. When the gospel is preached clearly, when the people are listening, and when the Holy Spirit comes and takes the things of Christ and penetrates hearts, they become convicted. Now, First, notice in uh, chapter 2, how does this conviction, what is this conviction, what are we talking about, this conviction here? Well, first, in chapter 2, verse 37, it says, now when they heard this, and this is to state the obvious, but in order for you to be convicted, in order for me to be convicted of the word of God, it must be preached. The word of God must be preached. And this is why throughout all the ages, what they always want, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to cap the preachers. He wants to close up the preacher's mouth. The Bible says that this is the way that God reaches his folks. This is the primary means. In order for the gospel to be internalized, in order for the gospel to be submitted to, it must first be heard. I don't want to skip the obvious. The gospel must be transmitted by conversation. It must be transmitted by writing. It must be transmitted by one-on-one -on -one discussion. But primarily, the gospel must be transmitted by teaching and preaching. God's primary means for reaching people with the gospel is by preaching the gospel. He could have picked any other means. 
But in his wisdom, he desires for men to be raised up and preach. Now, consequently, this has drastic effects on gospel ministry. The gospel must center on Christ as proclaimed in the gospel, but we must not allow anything to block the preaching, the teaching of God's word. Sometimes in, in our zeal to reach folks, in our desire to reach folks, we may have all these gatherings and, and folks will come and it has a, it has, and that's fine to gather people, but if it is devoid of preaching, if, if it is devoid of uh, teaching the gospel, it will not have its intended effect. Yesterday, my, my family was um, driving by and they were having an outreach and it was, there was, a, we saw, we, we, we understand their hearts. We know, we, we believe that they love Christ. There was this church that was on the corner and they took a Wiz Khalifa song uh, and they converted it to a Christian song and no one was being affected. No one was being convicted. No one was being gripped by his grace. And, and as, as uh, my kids were asking, Dad, why are they doing that? They're doing that because they don't understand that preaching is the primary we- means by which God saves. It is, even in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls it, God calls it, the foolish method. Even if I would save those by the foolishness of the, preach- of the message preached, it is definitely a foolish mes- method, but it is the method by which God has called us to propagate the gospel. I can't change that. I don't want to change that. You can't change that. This is the primary means by which God saves. Now, Manny, this, the AC, can we turn that up? Because I'm hot. All right. All right. Now, if you're a Christian, on the other hand, if you're a Christian, you have to open your mouth. It's a great mistake to say at work or at school or at some sports or social club and believe this saying, if they just see my life, and see how different it is in Christ, they're going to be saved. You know, I don't want to talk about it because, you know, we don't talk about it in work. I don't want to talk about it because we don't talk about it in school. If they just see my life, then they're going to be saved. Now, don't get me wrong. It's truly important to live for Christ, to have your life match your testimony, but that is not enough. The gospel cannot be believed unless it is heard. For that to happen, you have to open your mouth. You must allow faith to give way to fear, just as Peter did when he preached his sermon to those who previously killed Christ. Romans chapter 10 says, um, if you, uh, let me go ahead and read this. In Romans chapter 10, it says, verse 9. Oh, verse 14. How? Then will they call on him whom they have not believed? You can't call on him whom they have not believed. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? 
So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you are not a Christian this morning, my prayer is that you would hear this. Not just listen, but hear. My prayer is that you would block out the concerns of today. Of caricatures and misconceptions of what you heard about Christ. And let him speak for himself through the preached word. Don't think about what would, uh, don't think about what someone, so-and-so would say. Just listen. Listen and heed to the good news that there is a God who created you. Whom you have not bowed down to. But who loved you so much that he has caused you to be here this morning. To receive this message. I do know this fact. He loves you so much that he has caused you to be here. To receive this message. Secondly, for the gospel to bring conviction, it has to penetrate. It has to be heard. It has to be the gospel, but it has to penetrate. Now, admittedly, the word conviction is not in the text. It doesn't appear in the text. It's nonetheless described. In this context, conviction is the work of the Spirit on the conscience of the unbeliever to sense his or her own guilt before a holy God apart from the salvation of Christ. It is a work of the Holy Spirit on the conscience of the unbeliever to sense his or her own guilt before a holy God apart from the salvation of Christ. God has to do this work. Even if you say man is a sinner, even if you say you have sinned before God, even if you say all those things and the, and the verdict is read, they have to be convicted by the Holy Spirit because they will not see their sin. Man is so in his sin, he doesn't, he's not even convinced of his sin. I remember we were trying to share the gospel with one of the grandpa, uh, grandfathers of one of our friends back, um, back in our hometown. And the grandfather just said, nope, I don't sin. And he was an old Filipino guy, and I, we, I was dumbfounded. And we were sharing the gospel Look, uh, the Bible says, thou shalt not steal. Have you ever stole? Yes. The Bible says, if you look at, at anyone with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Have you ever done that? Yes. Okay, so the Bible says you are guilty. No, I don't commit sin, you would say. Have you ever tried to share the gospel? And there are folks who just don't think they need it. Because they think they're just fine. It's very hard, especially in a beautiful place where we live. This is a beautiful place. Legoland's just right over there. We drive, and it's always, basically always sunny. Hurricane's over there, not here, right? It's always nice, just about. Uh, the landscape is finely manicured. There's palm trees everywhere. Sky is blue. Why do I need this Christ? Why do I need to follow him? The Bible says that you are in sin and that apart from him, you have no hope. Well, I, I just don't believe that because my life is so good. I just don't think I'm, I'm that sinful. My life is so good. See, the, the Holy Spirit has to bring conviction. The Holy Spirit has to bring uh, a belief in the word of God that this is actually true. Notice he says here, 
pierce to the heart. The word there for pierce is stabbed. Pricked deeply. It's an idiomatic expression of a sharp pain felt in the heart of conviction and remorse, greatly distressed, very troubled. And it says to the heart. This means to the very deep center of man. What happened was Peter was proclaiming who Christ was. He was proclaiming that they were complicit in Christ's murder. And the crowd realized their guilt. And instead of welcoming the Messiah like they should have, they rejected him. And they were complicit in his murder. See, we need God to work in people's hearts such that he pierces the heart. We are utterly helpless in gospel ministry. Now, it is very easy to create big crowds. All you got to do is have a nice big tent and, and do your publications and everything like that. It is impossible, impossible for us to save anyone. It is absolutely impossible for us to bring conviction on the hearts of the souls of men. It is absolutely impossible for people to finally say, yes, the problem is me. The problem is me. Not everyone else, blaming everyone else. The problem is me and I need a savior. You can't do that. Have you, have you figured that out yet? When you're sharing the gospel with folks who will not have him, they won't receive him. You need power from on high. Where does that come from? I need the spirit of God to pierce their heart with the word of God or else it won't have any effect. And let me tell you, that's what we need. It's better than the gimmicks. It's better than social media. It's better than all of the, all of the extra biblical arguments of apologetics. It's better than, than self-help. It's better than morality. When the Holy Spirit works, you can't stop a person from coming to Christ. Now, why? Because conviction goes much deeper than what man can do. I don't want to speak to a man and, and simply uh, talk about superficial change. I don't want to say, hey, you know what? What you need to do is quit smoking because that's going to change your life. That's just superficial change. You need to go home and stop spending your money on alcohol. That's superficial change. We need to get to the heart of man. We need to pierce and penetrate to the very thoughts of man. And we can't do that. Why? Because there is a sphere that I cannot touch, that you cannot touch, that you can't even touch in your children. That husband, you cannot touch in your wife's life. Wife, you can't touch in your husband's life. You, when you share the gospel, you know that they are an individual person. And if they are not hearing you, they will not receive it. And so what do you need? You need the power. God. Why? Because nothing goes deeper. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. This is a text that um, we read Hebrews chapter 4. Notice verse 12. 
For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. This is the short sword here. Piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrows and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The thought, those are the, those are the, those are the thoughts behind what the person says. A person is saying, well, I'm not this way because I, I have these excuses. It's behind those. We need to get to the depths of that person's soul, to the depths of that person's heart. The gospel has to get there. How does it do that? Notice it says here, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That, that uh, word open and laid bare is kind of like the same kind of word that would describe a fillet in a fish. You know, when you cut the fish and it's open up and you see every single thing about that fish. And what God's word does by his spirit is when we hear the preaching of God's word, he opens and lays us bare such that we can no longer make any excuses. Such that we know, hey, this is my sin. Such that I'm not going to blame it on him or blame it on her or blame it on my situation or blame it on my economic background or blame it on my, my family life. It is me. The Bible opens and lays bare a person's soul. This is what we pray for. God, would you do that work? Would you convict them? Would you pierce their heart? Some may say the word is too simplistic or archaic or God's, or some may say that it's too simple. God says your psychology and your man-made philosophy does not go deep enough. God has to go deep in the heart. Now, conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit. Notice in John chapter 16, John chapter 16, conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, the Spirit uses the word to pierce our hearts, to penetrate to the very intentions. John chapter 16 says in verse 7 to 14, let me see, and he, verse 8, Oh, let me start seven. But I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, the truth. It is your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's the spirit. Verse eight. And when he, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they did not believe me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no, no longer see me. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is this conviction. The conviction here is that he opens your mind up and he admonishes you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, he shows you that you're actually a sinner. Most folks don't believe that. He actually shows you that you, have, you are corrupt before God. That I have broken the Ten Commandments before God. So he shows you your sin. He shows you, it says sin, righteousness, your lack of righteousness. And it shows you judgment that apart from Christ, you're going to be judged. Now, the person who is not convicted, who doesn't see that, who doesn't care to hear it, they, they've not had the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They've not 
And you know what? You cannot force someone who has not sensed the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who is not, you can't force them to be saved. Have you ever tried to argue someone into salvation? You can't do it. God has to convict their heart. So conviction has to take place by the word, as Hebrews chapter 4. Conviction has to, is the work of the Holy Spirit. But also conviction, here's one thing you have to understand, is conviction is not conversion. Conviction is not conversion. We know this, that the rich young ruler was convicted, but he was not saved. Felix was convicted, but he was not saved. See, much of evangelical Christianity is confused with this. They think that tears equals conversion. They think that all these emotions, because of what they heard in the gospel, they think that's conversion. That's not conversion. They may sing just as I am for two hours, and they have this feeling that they're guilty, but that's not conversion. Don't get confused with this. Notice in Peter's response back in Acts. Go back to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2. He says, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what must we do? Peter said to them, repent. So notice, Peter's response to their next question. He goes, brethren, what shall we do? So they are convicted and Peter knows they are not saved. Peter knows and he responds instead of saying, oh, you're saved now because you have this feeling. Oh, you're saved now because your conscience is pricked. Or you're saved now because you feel bad. Peter says now, he says, you must repent. You must repent. Conviction is not conversion. It must provoke. And, so, and Peter and the rest of the apostles, they said, brethren, what shall we do? When God moves, the listeners humble themselves. There's no more debating. There's no more smokescreen. No more deal-making. No more negotiations with God. They say, what do I have to do? I was wrong, is the heart. I was wrong. There, is there any hope for me? There's humility now where there was pride. You have to wait for this, brothers and sisters. You got to let the Spirit do its work. You preach, you pray, you love, but you got to wait for this. In your mom, in your dad, in your daughter, in your son, in your cousin, in your aunt, in your uncle, your nephew, your niece, grandma, grandpa, your workout partners, your classmates, your teammates, your playdates, your coworkers, your surf buddies, your mailman, your Amazon delivery man. You work to have these conversations, you preach the gospel, and you wait for the spirit to work. Wait for that conviction. Now, there are three elements of the gospel you must, you must have to turn to Christ and to be saved. First, the gospel has to bring conviction. It, is, it moves from just simply being in the abstract, that there is a Christ who died, that we are guilty before him. It moves from the abstract to reality. Secondly, the gospel needs to be explained, not just bring conviction, but it has to be explained. Look at verses 38 to 40. Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 40. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Here are the responses as you hear it explained. Notice, first, here's the responses. You need to change your mind. You must change your mind, verse 38. Peter says, repent. 
This is an individual and an internal decision. This is a decision that happens deep in the heart. This is a decision that is born by faith. The word there for repent means to change your mind. It's typically linked with regret and sorrow. It's to feel or sense remorse. Now, the Bible will say, folks will say, well, I thought you were supposed to believe and be saved. The Bible here says to repent. Because here in Peter's mind, belief in Christ is the flip side of the coin of repentance. Both come together. As I change my mind, this is what repentance is, I change my mind about God, about my sin. I change my mind of what I thought was right. I was wrong. The Bible is right. God is right. I have to change my mind. And so what happens is, it's the repenting is a turning away in the heart. It is an attitude that says, I will not follow the world and its philosophies. I will not follow sin and its philosophies. I'm not going to follow after it anymore. So what happens is, as a person walks in life, they are chasing after the world, chasing after their own desires, chasing after their own sin, and they go away from Christ. What happens is, God convicts them in their soul. God convicts them and he regenerates them. And what happens is they turn. And they turn away from the world and they turn towards Christ in faith. So it is the flip side of the, of the coin of faith. So when you trust in Christ, you exercise faith. When you repent, you turn away from the world, sin, and Satan. And so what uh, Peter says in his mind, these are interchangeable terms for him. He says, believe, repent. They all come at the same time for Peter. Okay. As you trust Christ, you repent from the world, sin and Satan. It's not a work, but it's a trusting, a mindset, a new attitude. Just as I now believe in Christ, I am no longer enslaved to this world. It's a way of thinking about its, uh, and changing your mind about its philosophies. Now notice here in Acts 26, you'll see an example of this, of turning away from the world, turning away from the uh, gods of this world, and turning towards Christ. Notice in Acts 26 verse 20 he's going to show here in acts 26 and verse uh 20 um and peter's uh, and paul is talking about his defense and he says so king agrippa i did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision but this is what i did i kept declaring both to those of damascus first and also at jerusalem and then throughout all the region of judea and even to the gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Notice, that they should repent and turn to God. There's a turning towards God. There's a repenting from their sin. There's a repenting from their old life. And so what happens is, in salvation, they come together. If you have a faith, a so-called faith without a repentance, that is not a true faith. You understand? When folks say, I want Jesus as Savior and not my Lord, I don't want to listen to Him, I don't want to obey Him, I just want to believe in Him for fire insurance, that is not a true faith. The Bible says, when you have faith, you have repentance as well. Your life is changed. Your life is new. And this is why there's so much confusion now. 
Because now, when you change the definition of a Christian, of someone who solely agrees on the data of the cross, the data of Christ, and their lives do not change, there is no repentance of sin, there is no turning away from their old gods, there is no new life. And so Peter calls these people because they were murderers. They were complicit with the murder of Christ. And he says, you need to repent. You killed and you crucified the Lord of glory. Acts chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read. Um, In Acts chapter 3, 19, it says, Repent therefore and return, that your sins may be wiped away. And then it says, Acts 16, 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus. And then in Acts 17, 30, it says, God is declaring to men everywhere that they should repent. Verse, and then Acts chapter 19 says, believe in him. It's back and forth, back and forth. Why? Because in their minds, there was no separation. See, in American evangelicalism, there is this separation. Oh, you could be a Christian, but not a disciple. False. There's no such thing in the scriptures that you could be a Christian and not a disciple. That is a new, aberrant teaching. I could trust in Christ, but never follow him. I could trust in him, but never bow to him as my Lord. I could trust in him, but he's never my Savior and Lord, and he, he will not, uh, I don't have to listen to what he says. That is false. That's a lie from the devil. You are trusting in quicksand. If your life is not changed, if you are not following and pursuing after Christ, if your life is not repenting of the world and of self, you have not been saved. Now it says back in chapter 2, you have to change your mind internally and individually, that is repenting, externally and publicly. Notice he says here, Acts chapter 2, repent and each of you be baptized baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You you have to understand the context there. He's talking to Jews who grew up through the synagogue, who grew up with this whole tradition of the Old Testament and their belief in the Messiah and who mostly rejected Christ. And what he's saying to them is, if in fact you are a believer in Christ, You have to state it publicly. You have to go public with baptism. This was difficult for Jews. You got to understand this. I am cutting myself off. And in fact, in in, in the gospel, they knew that when they stood for Christ, they were going to be put out of the synagogue. They're no longer in the community. See, that's not how it is for us here in the United States. If you become a Christian, there's really not as much consequences socially as there is in different places. I remember... When we were in a a South Asian country, and I remember one of our friends got saved, and she was a Hindu. And And her parents came to the baptism, and they were fuming mad. And we thought there was going to be fireworks. Luckily, there was, I mean, thank God we were, there was no fireworks, but they knew what baptism meant. I don't think what the United States and Americans, I don't think we understand quite fully what baptism meant. Baptism meant there is a cut, there is a break. I am publicly telling everyone, 
I've been made anew and I own Christ. And so Peter says, put your money where your mouth is. Do you understand? If you say you're a Christian, get in the waters. And what that does is it weeds out completely any false believer. It just weeds them out. Because why? Peter says, if you're really saved, you're going to step in the waters and own him. You got to understand, that must have been a powerful church. Because they all counted the cost. Notice he says here, for the forgiveness of your sins, that you will receive the Holy Spirit of promise. I love this. Notice in Peter's mind, the first thing he thinks about is the forgiveness of sins. And I love that word. The word there for forgiveness doesn't mean just take away, just take, to take your sins. It means actually he takes it away. And so in Peter's mind, he says, turn, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The water, not to be mistaken, the water does not forgive you. The repenting does. The believing does. The word there for the forgiveness of your sins, is, it's the Greek ace, which also means concerning. So be for, he, he says, repent in the Lord Jesus Christ for, and concerning the forgiveness of your sins. You will be saved because of that. What's interesting is, here's what's interesting, that Peter actually makes it difficult. Have you noticed? He makes it difficult. The gospel is absolutely free, but he makes it, he makes it difficult to weed out any false believers. He's, he, he desires that there to, he calls people to repent. There has to be a change. He calls people to baptism, that there has to be a declarative break. I'm no longer that person anymore. He calls you to prove you're a genuine believer. Step in the waters. As one commentator says, true repentance, however, will inevitably manifest itself in total submission to the Lord's will. This is just like how Jesus, you would think if, so, if a modern evangelical person were to see the way they share the gospel and to look at the way Peter shares the gospel and the way Jesus shared the gospel, they would probably tell Peter and Jesus, you guys don't know how to share the gospel. Listen to Jesus, okay? When the rich young ruler came, right, you would say, oh, he's ready, man. Sign him up. He's saved. And yet Jesus says, no, you need to give away everything. Why? Because he still had a dominating sin over his life that proved to show that he was not saved at all. But here's what Jesus says, okay? Here's what Jesus says. Luke chapter 14. Don't, I'll just read it to you. He goes, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe is, be is begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? And Jesus just lays it out. Count the cost before you become a Christian. Count the cost. It's interesting. Jesus puts, it's almost like Jesus puts roadblocks, doesn't he? You want to believe in Christ? Boom, 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 boom. If you really do, you need to do this. If you really do, your life will reflect this. Your heart will reflect this. And so Peter does the same. If you really want to be saved, repent. And as a fruit of your repentance, okay, step into the waters. Now, Acts chapter 2, 39, he says, believe God's assurance. Notice verse 39, it says, for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. And that is referring back to the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant, the promises for you and for your children. And here's where we fit for all who are far off, that is us. Unless you are a Jew, um, if you're a Gentile, that's me. That's you. For all who are far off. This promise is, is now, it was given to the people of Israel, but now its blessings are extended to us. Notice in Acts 2, 39. As many as the Lord our God will call, to himself. Notice God calls. God draws. God comforts. God causes repentance. God softens hearts. Verse 40. Leave your life. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this distorted generation, this generation that has false teaching, false philosophies, false morality, a false view of spiritual things. So, the three elements of the gospel that you must have in order to be saved. Number one, the gospel must bring conviction. Number two, the gospel must be explained. And number three, the gospel must be embraced. Oh, this is sweet. The gospel must be embraced. Look at 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. When the gospel is embraced, number one, uh, letter A under there, you humbly welcome Christ. So then those who had received his word, the word there for receive means to welcome, to receive favorably, to approve, to believe. So then those who had received his word were baptized. The when the gospel is embraced, they publicly own Christ, as we talked about before. Lastly, when the gospel is embraced, you resolutely commit yourself to a church. It says, they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Notice, they're adding, how do you know how many souls were added? Because you already know how many you have. And so when there's an addition, you know that there is an addition of this church membership. There's accounting. There's some kind of roster here. You can't know 3,000 more unless you know that there were some at least 120 prior. But how do I know that this was the church that kept meeting? Notice verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. What happened? They were saved. They repented of their sin. They believed in Christ. They were saved. They were baptized. They joined a local church. And then they started living their lives together commit in committed devotion to the apostles, teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, and to breaking of bread. And they kept meeting. So I go back to my friend Oliver. Oliver never came to Christ. He was the guy who was most decent, right? He always wore polo shirts and nice jeans, and he was just always just a clean-cut guy. And his friend Kyle was braided dreads and t-shirt sloppy and would graffiti on the quad at we were at UC at one of the UCs I won't tell you which one but. <laughs> he would steal CDs from the from the local uh, store there <laughs> CDs I don't know if you guys if you kids remember what those were all these uh, hip hop CDs and everything he was just he was this crazy art major you know and I thought Oliver was going to be saved. I really did. I really thought Oliver was going to be saved. But when I shared with Kyle, I didn't even know what I was doing, to be quite frank. I just said, how's your relationship with God? And that pierced him. I remember it was in my dorm room. It pierced him. He even sat on the floor and he goes, I have none, Angelo. I have no relationship with God. And then started this relationship, and I started to walk him through scriptures. And I just saw this conviction, and then turned to conversion, and into faith. And he started walking with God. And he started walking with God, and growing, and growing, and growing, and growing in the Lord. And he returned the CDs. I told you a story before. He returned the CDs to the place where he stole it, not knowing if they were going to arrest him or not. He, he, and he stopped good. I'm glad he stopped graffitiing on the student square quad there. And he grew in the Lord. He went to Bible college afterwards. And he's a pastor now in Southern California, close to Gardenia over there. And that, and just, that just goes to show you can have the same gospel given to, this, to the same roommates there. And yet God must bring the conviction. God must do the salvation. God must do the change. And even if, that's why you can't tell who's going to respond. You can't. They're usually the person who's least likely to respond in your mind. Why? Because he wants to confound you. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit comes, takes the word of God, pierces their hearts, changes them forever. That's what we want for everyone who is here. That's what we want for all of our kids, all of our relatives, all of our friends, all of our neighbors. That's why you should spread that net wide and keep sharing the gospel. Keep loving people because you don't know who God is going to convict. Amen? Who he's going to pierce right in the heart. And that's what we pray for. The supernatural work of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would do this work. Help us to understand it even in our gospel ministries and help us to, I pray if there is someone who is thinking about the claims of Christ and 
wondering whether or not they're saved, I pray, Lord, that you would convict their souls even today. Convict them even as they go home. Save them in their bedroom, God. You can save anywhere. Lord, I pray that your spirit would bring them all the way to salvation, that they would believe and repent. Thank you for your saving grace. Thank you that you've called your people to come out, to come forth. We pray, Lord, help us to sing. Thank you for this lovely Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.